It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Academics tend to annoy most investment professionals, what with their pedantic obsession with data and facts and observable phenomenon. And the two interviews featured in this programme certainly feature a world-class collection of number crunches and myth-busters. The first interview is with Professors Paul Marsh and Elroy Dimpson of the London Business School. They're authors of a seminal book on stock market returns over the long term called Triumph of the Optimists. It's the main reference book for anyone seriously interested in looking at the thorny subject of whether shares, equities, are worth the risk for most private investors over that very long run. So... Does Professor Ma still think shares are worth the risk for long-term investors? Yes, we do. Uh, they are more rewarding in an expectational sense. In other words, you're going to expect to get a high return from equities, probably, in our view, something like 3 3.5% per annum more. But the reason you're going to get that is because of risk. There's a risk premium. People don't like equities. Equities are priced at a discount. And because of that, you expect a higher reward from equities. But that higher reward is not guaranteed. And so the notion that equities are for the long run is fine insofar as it goes. But there is no period over which you are safe. Equities are not a safe investment. By definition, they wouldn't give a higher reward unless they were. But although shares may be worth the risk, that doesn't mean that the returns will always be positive. Far from it. There are many periods over which shares have produced some dreadful returns, the last 10 years being one of many examples. The last decade has been absolutely terrible for equities. In fact, in the US, um, bonds have done just about as well as equities over the last 40 years. Uh, but that's partly because bonds have done incredibly well. So equities have not done badly over the last 40 years. It's just that bonds have been the exception rather than equities. But equities have certainly been bad over the last decade. Over the last 20 years, they've been okay-ish. Over the last 25 years, they've been quite good. Uh, and you're right, you can pick the wrong period. And that's what risk is about. You just get hit by risk periodically. So if shares are volatile and risky, is there any sensible way of avoiding those risky years or even decades? And timing when you stick your money into the stock markets. It's called market timing. The sad thing about market timing, whether it's just straight market timing based on how the markets behave, the kind of charting timing, or whether it's based on valuation ratios, cyclically adjusted, whatever. Uh, the problem with all of that is that everybody's trying to do it. <laughs> and that there's a lot of smart people out there. 
And the evidence, sadly, suggests that people's market timing abilities are not very great. Uh, just as their stock selection abilities, you know, on average, are not very great. There are some exceptions to that. We don't believe markets are you know, totally efficient. Um, but it's difficult. It's, it's really tough out there because it's a very, very competitive world in the fund management business. But many analysts and stock pickers beg to differ. They insist that only investing when the markets are cheap is the best way of timing an investment in shares. Professor Elroy Dimson doesn't agree. I think the dilemma is this, that you're describing a very simple trading system. You look at valuation models, you look at prices in relation to fundamental values, and you buy when, when things look cheap. That's what most investment managers do. If you talk to investment professionals and say, um, do you try to buy when prices are low relative to earnings, book value sales, or do you try to buy when prices are high? <laughs> Uh, they, they try to buy when prices are low, right? Yeah. So this is a trading system that everybody knows about. And yet when we have a look at the performance of professional fund managers, <laughs> the average performance of professional fund managers is inferior to simply index. buying the index and holding it. So between them all, uh, it's very difficult to conjure up superior performance using simple rules. One of the reasons why so many academics think that things like market timing doesn't work is that markets, by and large, get it right. They are efficient already, and that you, the poor investor, can't hope to beat the aggregate decisions of the market. There's a whole hypothesis for this. It's called the efficient markets hypothesis, and it suggests that we should all ignore stock pickers and stick to boring old FTSE all-share index trackers. It's a consensus that's coming under attack, though, from many, many analysts who reckon that markets are, in fact, deeply inefficient. Professor Paul Marsh is cautious of this criticism of the efficient markets hypothesis. The issue about market efficiency is that it, it gets sort of held up as being markets are always right. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what market efficiency says. Market efficiency basically says that markets do the best job they can with the information they've got at the time. And... Um, the, the test of it, really, is that if you believe markets are, are grossly inefficient, that they form bubbles and they form depressions and, and, and whatever, uh, the, the, the test of that is, is what rule is it that you can actually follow that will make you more money than the market, that will beat the market, and how many people out there consistently do that? Uh, and that's where I think the efficient market theory really still stands very strongly. And the, the, the challenge um, is that active managers as a group uh, do struggle to beat the averages. Even those who believe that markets are generally efficient, like Professors Marsh and Dimpson, even they accept that markets are not always efficient and that certain strategies designed to capture extra levels of risk or even inefficiencies can work and do produce superior returns over time. Three stand out. Buying cheap stocks, called value investing, buying risky small caps, also known as the size effect, and buying the most popular stocks on the stock market, also called momentum investing. Professor Paul Marsh thinks both momentum and value are still hugely relevant, although he's not too sure about the size effect anymore. The one that probably has the lowest persistence is the size effect, but it seems to have some persistence. The value effect seems to be quite robust, and the momentum effect seems to be quite robust. But that is over very long horizons, and in the short run you can get very badly caught out. Of these three risk factors, or some like to call them inefficiencies, Professor Dimson and Marsh are most interested in their recent research in that momentum factor, 
which involves basically buying the strongest price-performing shares relative to the market. Paul Marsh again. Momentum has worked extraordinarily well over the long run. Over 108 years in the UK, the uh, momentum returns are extremely strong. Uh, but uh, despite that, you can have periods like the start of this year mm-hmm. when momentum really hits you. And probably, I mean, our estimates uh, are that uh, momentum strategy over the first four months of this year would probably have lost you about, a, depending on the precise form it took, about a third of, of your money. So, faced with all these difficulties in capturing extra returns using strategies like momentum, what should investors, ordinary humble investors, actually do? Professor Marsh recommends investing in simple, cheap index tracking funds. Index funds, I think, are a great vehicle for a private investor who wants a diversified portfolio and doesn't want to have to think about it. Um, And they can also get a globally diversified portfolio through using ETFs. And uh, it's a sensible thing for them to do. Their academic evidence does not say uh, that you can't find active managers that consistently beat the market. It just says it's really hard to do. And that for the private investor, it's probably consistently. Absolutely. And returning to that issue of market timing, did the good professors think that now might be a good time to return to the stock market? Professor Elroy Dimson is certainly very optimistic. Uh, when we look forward, I, I really sit on the fence here. I think there is a case that could be made that uh, the worst is behind us because we've seen stock prices improve and they'd have to fall a uh, quite measurable amount to get back to a position that took us down to 3,500. But uh, um, as for the future, I think if you've got some spare cash you've never had before, now's obviously a better time than to invest it yeah. in the market with it. So, one and a half or twice its current level. But um, that's, I think, as much as you can say. Professor Paul Marsh is a little more cautious. Current bear market in the UK, at any rate, is only the third worst in on record. In fact, uh, the worst was 1973-4. Uh, second worst was 2000-2003. We've not actually done as bad. Yeah, not, not from peak to trough, not as badly uh, at this stage. Um, and we've picked up 20% or so since the lows of early March. So as always says, this um, this could be recovery. If you want to look at a serious bear market, go back to 73-74. 73-74 lasted 24 months. It tracked the current bear market almost precisely, if you draw a graph of it, up to the end of February, beginning of March, when markets hit their low. Uh, from that point on, uh, the UK market, over the next seven to eight months in 73-74 fell another 55%. Right. So call this a bear market? Not everyone in the world of academia and stock market research and analysis buys the idea that shares are a great idea in the long run. One of the most vocal critics of recent times is Rob Arnott. He's one of the leading financial analysts in the USA, editor of a host of key journals and now boss of a successful fund advisory and indexing service. I caught up with him at a noisy London restaurant to get his view on the relative merits of investing in shares over the long run. He's not convinced. Basically, we have an industry that has developed a cult of equities, a notion that if you buy stocks, you will win if you're patient. And patience is defined as five or ten years, that stocks march to new highs, interrupted by occasional inconveniences known as bear markets. Um, The reality is something very different, and that is that stocks do win over the very long run, 
and indeed they should because they're a secondary claim on company resources relative to bonds. But they win uh, over spans measured in generations, not measured in years. And they win in fits and starts. The stocks for the long-run thesis, uh, promoted by Jeremy Siegel, has been embraced by the investment banking and brokerage community, uh, the financial advisor community, and has been morphed into something more than it is. It's been morphed into the notion that it doesn't matter what you pay for stocks as long as you're patient. And that's wrong. Anything you invest in, if you buy it cheap, you're likely to be pleased fairly quickly. If you pay too much, you're likely to have to wait a long, long time to be happy, if ever. So, faced with all this uncertainty about returns from investing in shares, how should investors actually go about building a better portfolio? Should they, for instance, constantly try and control the risk of investing in shares? Arnott's had lots of useful tips for building the better portfolio. Well, there's, there's a terrible way, there's a good way, and there's a better way. The terrible way is to chase what's gone up. That's what most people do. If stocks have performed nicely in the last year or two, people are more comfortable. They think, gosh, these investments have treated me well, I want more of them. As if buying more now gives you more participation in the appreciation of the past, um, which it doesn't. The simple, naive 60-40 is much better because it gives you a rebalancing discipline. It gives you an objective basis to say, oh, goodness, this asset's gone down, that asset's gone up. Let me trim the winner and put some money back into the loser. I did an article in the mid-90s in which uh, I looked at the returns of various rebalancing approaches. And it turns out that what approach you use, whether you do it monthly or quarterly or annually or based on 10% market moves or 20% market moves, doesn't matter. What matters is uh, whether you do it at all. Rebalancing is valuable. The one thing investors shouldn't do when building a better portfolio is chase momentum. Don't chase the sexy stocks that the market loves. Or at least that's what Rob Arnott thinks. Most investors look for what's done well, and the better it's done, the more willing they are to pursue it. Um, imagine back in 2002, looking at emerging market stocks, which had been had had a negative return for 10 years, and imagine thinking, "Gosh." This is now really cheap. I ought to buy this. These economies are growing faster than ours. How wonderful is that? People don't think that way. And so one of the core messages um, is a very simple one, and that is the markets don't reward comfort. The markets reward discomfort. Um, if you invest in something that is popular, you're likely to be disappointed. And in 2000, and again in 2007, stocks were very popular. 
there were those promoting the notion that stocks were safer than bonds based on the fact that over very long periods of time there are very few 20-year spans where stocks underperform bonds. Well, that's true. But if the view that stocks are safer leads them to a valuation level that is quite extraordinary, they may indeed underperform bonds for 20 years. And in fact, that's exactly what happened over the 40-year span ended early this year. Those who bought stocks in early 1969, that's a long time ago, uh, would have been better off in long treasury bonds. Pretty startling. And it's because 40 years ago, stocks were yielding 2.5%, bonds were yielding 6%, bonds were out of favor. They became more out of favor in the 1970s. They did very badly. So did stocks. But with some seesawing back and forth, uh, eventually stocks became extravagantly expensive and crashed. And at the end of that crash, they had managed to underperform bonds not for 10 years or 20 years, but for 40 years. The best way of building a portfolio, in Rob Arnott's view, is to be cautious and not overpay for shares. Be a value investor. The best way to invest is to actually contra-trade against what has done best and is most popular and into what is done worst and is most loathed. And it's very hard to do. It means buying junk bonds when everyone knows they're all going bust. It means buying the deep value stocks, the autos, the banks, the industrials, when everyone knows that there's a new economy and these are all going bust. And it may be uncomfortable, but it works because the, the most powerful mechanism in the market is mean reversion. It's like a pendulum. When the pendulum swings too far, it's going to swing back. And you don't know how far it's going to swing back. You don't know when it's going to swing back. You can't see the pendulum with enough accuracy to pick the top of the swing and catch it just before it goes the other way. But if you're getting more and more focused on the asset before it swings back, you'll participate in that swing. Arnott also thinks that investors need to be careful about how they diversify their portfolio. He thinks they should junk ideas about a perfectly diversified, optimized portfolio with a perfect efficient frontier and instead focus in on the sectors and themes they like. I think it makes a lot of sense to diversify. I do not think it makes sense to put all your eggs in one basket. If you were to choose the single most out-of-favor, loathed market in the world and constantly revisit that portfolio and make sure you're always in it, chances are very good that you would do beautifully. Chances are also reasonably good that one or another of those investments deserves to be loathed and hurts you badly. Um, I think diversification has a lot of merit. Sometimes it doesn't work. Last fall, mid-September to mid-November, diversification failed miserably. Everything was cratering. Everything. And uh, we track 16 major asset classes in our global asset allocation work with PIMCO. In October, 16 out of 16 were down. 
never happened before. Um, stocks were down 12%. The average on the list of 16 asset classes, most of which are less volatile than stocks, was down 14 They were down worse than stocks. So efforts to diversify hurt you. They didn't help you. But they helped you with a lag. Because after mid-November, what snapped back were the safe havens that people use for diversification. And so I think you want a diversified portfolio. I think the notion of arguing over 31% UK equities versus 33 is a complete waste of time unless unless you're just doing rebalancing as your sole means of adding value. So Arnott's message is that diversification is a good idea, but stay focused. Stay focused on those big themes. Most of the advantage of diversifying happens with three or four significant positions in seriously cheap assets. And if you go beyond 10, you're diluting the opportunity set. Building a better portfolio doesn't mean going insane, though, when it comes to risks on at once. Diversification is useful, but what's even better is rebalancing your portfolio and notching down some of the potential risk from having positions that are too big for your portfolio. The act of rebalancing, no matter how you do it, is worth about a half a percent for domestic portfolios and about a percent to a percent and a quarter for global portfolios. That's valuable. That compounds mightily over time. If you if you do 1% a year better for the 40 years of your career, you'll be retiring on 40% more wealth, 40% more annual income in retirement. That's wonderful. Arnott's value-focused ideas about building a better portfolio are not without their critics. They maintain his exclusive focus on finding cheaper, unloved stocks misses out on the other ideas and strategies that can deliver big profits. What about momentum investing, for instance? That can also deliver superior returns. Momentum works in the short run. It doesn't work in the long run. And also momentum works until it doesn't work. Um, And when it doesn't work, it bites you very hard. Uh, The... The problem with momentum is it doesn't work at market turns. And so what we find is that if something has performed brilliantly, yes, momentum may carry it higher, but there's no harm in trimming it and continuing to trim it and continuing to trim it uh, because eventually it'll turn. And so what we find is that momentum works in spans measured in months and anti-momentum works in spans measured in years Uh, what has performed brilliantly over the last five years for instance is highly unlikely to be brilliant the next five years highly unlikely and so momentum is a short term phenomenon but it is powerful Quite apart from momentum as a strategy, many stock market analysts also think it's possible to work out what's going to be the growth stocks of tomorrow, the the Googles or the Tescos. If you can find these before the market catches on to them, your profits could be huge. The market does a beautiful job of identifying where the growth, growth opportunities are, and then it overpays for them. We have some new work based on a concept that we call clairvoyant value. 
Now, wouldn't it be nice if you could um, get a copy of um, the Financial Times with share prices listed and next to them the true fair value? What the companies will actually deliver net present value of all future cash flows. If we had that, it would be valuable. We don't have that, obviously, but we can create a 1980 copy of the FT with the prices and the fair value over the subsequent 29 years. That's easy. And if you do that, you find a very interesting pattern. Companies commanding premium multiples mostly do better as a business than companies commanding lower valuation multiples. And the correlation between the valuation multiples that they have and that they ought to have is 50 to 60%. It's huge. But here's the problem. The companies that deserve a higher multiple on average deserve about a 50% premium to the ones that deserve a lower multiple. And in fact, they command twice the multiple. So that's, well, that's fascinating because what you're su- suggesting is that the, the typical value sneer against growth companies is that actually it's all pointless. You're never going to spot them. But what you're suggesting is... That, that's not true. Yes, that growth... Growth is a valid phenomenon. There are companies that do well, and the company, and in fact, when the market spots a successful company, by and large, it's it's not it's not a failure. It's doing it properly. It's spotting those companies, but it overpays for them as a consequence. Just as an illustrative example, B of A versus Google. Um, forgive me for using a U.S. example, but I know the Bank U.S. Of Americans. Market. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the market pays a very large premium multiple for Google and a very deep discount for Bank of America. I think there's an extremely high likelihood that Google will grow far more than Bank of America over the next 10 years, over the next 20 years. Very high likelihood. I think there's a very high likelihood that Google stock will underperform Bank of America stock over the next 10 to 20 years. The market tends to pick the right companies and pay approximately twice as much premium for them as it should. So, Rob Arnott thinks we should focus on value over the long term. That's quite clear. But he's also fairly convinced that there are some other short to medium term investment ideas we should also be looking at, particularly in beaten up bonds and high yielding fixed income securities. High yield, high yield and convertible bonds have wonderful spreads. They've contracted sharply in the last six months, but the spreads are still comparable to what they were in the Great Depression, which is really interesting. That part of the market is saying we're headed for Great Depression. If we are, then what the heck are growth stocks going to do from current valuation multiples? They're doomed. Um, And so buy the things that are priced for a gloomy outlook, sell the things that are priced for a benign outlook, and you wind up with a portfolio that's likely to treat you very nicely over time. Arnott is also hugely interested in commercial property, especially through listed investment trusts in the US and the UK called REITs real estate investment trusts. The REIT market is facing uh, a wave of foreclosures and defaults in commercial real estate. I think REITs will be 
a wonderful investment six to twelve months from now. So, but but you know, I could be wrong. And if somebody buys a little bit in REITs now, and if it craters for the next six months, and they buy more then, they'll be very happy in five years. There's one last subject on Rob Arnott's mind at the moment inflation and how the continued demand for hard assets like commodities will fuel growth in the emerging economies of the east too many people are too worried about deflation when central banks all over the world are setting a trillion dollar bonfire a month um, the likelihood of us dodging the inflation bullet in the years ahead is very slim and i think the risk of significant inflation in five to ten years and possibly much sooner is a very real risk. So I think investors need to be more sensitive to inflation risk than they are. Mainstream stocks are beautiful in a disinflationary economic expansion. Mainstream bonds are beautiful in a disinflationary economic contraction. Neither works in a reflationary world. So having some portion of your portfolio anchored in things that can do well in an inflationary world uh, is very interesting. Um, that's and are you doing it for your portfolios? That's one of the reasons that PIMCO launched their all-asset fund suite of strategies. And yes, we do manage that. Um, it does have an inflation protection orientation. The emerging economies uh, people aggregate them and they're as different as can be but in aggregate the uh, emerging economies are um, going to grow faster have more fiscal discipline have current account surpluses have less entitlement programs have um, less costly social safety nets. Uh, I'm not saying social safety nets are a bad thing. I, I'm saying that the cost of them has to be closely managed, and they're not. Um, and as a consequence of that, I think they offer greater growth opportunity with, ironically, more safety, less risk than most of the developed world. Uh, but they're not bargains. And so again, a modest anchor there. Um, there are fundamental index strategies in emerging economies. I was going to say, should we all become value investors in emerging markets now? I think that's a great opportunity. I think that's a great opportunity. Um, emerging markets have bonds. They're priced at a four to five percent premium yield to developed world even though they have more fiscal discipline current account surpluses and um, uh, less overhang of debt It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.